co-host of the Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition. I'm Judy Sondheimer. This podcast will abstract selected articles from the August 2010 issue of JPGN. A complete table of contents and access to complete articles can be found online at www.jpgn.org or at the Society webpage at www.naspigan.org. The first four original gastroenterology articles in this issue all deal with inflammatory bowel disease. The first is entitled, A Randomized Controlled Trial of Growth Hormone in Active Pediatric Crohn Disease by Denson and colleagues. Although human growth hormone may reduce symptoms and improve growth in Crohn disease, its effect on mucosal inflammation is unknown. The authors of this article hypothesized that growth hormone would improve clinical symptoms, histology, and growth in children with Crohn disease. They enrolled 20 children, 7 to 18 years of age, who were receiving corticosteroids for treatment of active disease. Half were randomly assigned to group A, where they received growth hormone, 0.075 milligrams per kilogram per day, in addition to steroids. The other 10 were assigned to group B and were maintained on corticosteroids alone. Clinical and endoscopic disease activities were assessed after 12 weeks. Group B then began growth hormone in addition to steroids and clinical disease activity was assessed again in 12 weeks. Group A and B subjects who had a good clinical response to growth hormone therapy continued treatment for an additional 52 weeks and linear growth was assessed at that time. The authors found that 65% of patients receiving growth hormone achieved clinical remission compared with 20% treated with corticosteroids alone. There was, however, no significant difference in the endoscopic disease activity of the growth hormone versus the placebo-treated group at the initial 12-week assessment. 61% of patients in both group A and B who had a positive clinical response to their 12-week trial of growth hormone maintained their clinical response through the 52 weeks of growth hormone treatment. The mean height Z-score on growth hormone increased significantly from minus 1.1 to minus 0.4 during the 52 weeks of growth hormone treatment. Growth hormone was well tolerated with no unexpected safety signals. The authors concluded that adding growth hormone to corticosteroid therapy did not reduce mucosal inflammation relative to corticosteroids alone, but that growth hormone appeared safe and effective as an adjunct to corticosteroids for treatment of clinical symptoms and growth failure. The second GI article is entitled Extraintestinal Manifestations of Pediatric Inflammatory Bowel Disease and Their Relationship to Disease Type and Severity by Dotson and colleagues. The purpose of this study was to determine the incidence rates of selected extraintestinal manifestations in pediatric inflammatory bowel disease and to look for correlations to patient age, sex, diagnosis, disease severity, and distribution. Data were obtained from the Pediatric IBD Collaborative Research Group Registry, an observational database that has been enrolling new diagnosed uh, IBD patients less than 16 years of age since 2002. Rates of extraintestinal manifestations occurring any time during the period of enrollment were examined. Patients with indeterminate colitis were not studied. Extraintestinal manifestations recorded in this study were arthralgia, arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, 
chronic active hepatitis, aphthous stomatitis, sclerosing cholangitis, erythema nodosum, pyoderma gangrenosum, iritis and uveitis, and pancreatitis. Bone mineralization, growth, and pubertal development were not assessed. The mean age of the 1,009 children studied was 11.6 years. 57% were boys. The mean follow-up was 26 months. 28% of all the patients had one or more extraintestinal manifestations. The most common extraintestinal complaint uh, was arthralgia, which occurred in 17%. Ankylosing spondylitis occurred in 8%, and arthritis occurred in 4%. 87% of the extraintestinal manifestations occurred in the first year after presentation. Increased disease severity at presentation was positively associated with the incidence of arthralgia, aphthous stomatitis, and erythema nodosum in both Crohn disease and ulcerative colitis. Patients with Crohn disease had statistically higher rates of aphthous stomatitis and erythema nodosum than patients with ulcerative colitis and patients with ulcerative colitis had a higher rate of sclerosing cholangitis than patients with Crohn disease. A number of other interesting correlations were made in this paper. The third article is entitled, Postoperative Outcome of Colectomy for Pediatric Patients with Ulcerative Colitis by Patton and colleagues. These authors conducted a retrospective chart review of all pediatric patients with ulcerative colitis who had undergone colectomy at the Children's Hospital of the University of California at San Francisco between 1980 and 2005. Their objective was to identify early complications of surgery occurring in the first 30 postoperative days and late complications occurring more than 30 days postoperatively. They identified 31 ulcerative colitis patients who had had colectomy. The age range was 6 to 19 years. 21 patients had total colectomy with ileal pouch, anal anastomosis, nine of whom had an initial diverting ileostomy. Five patients had an initial colectomy with J-pouch performed later. Four had an initial uh, emergency subtotal colectomy, and one had a colectomy with subsequent S-pouch formation. The median number of early postoperative complications was one per patient. Four patients required additional surgery to treat early complications the most common of which were small bowel obstruction in 19% and wound infection in 13%. Type or dose of preoperative medication did not have any impact on early postoperative complications. Late complications included pouchitis in 39%, anastomotic anal or rectal strictures in 16%, and fistulas in 16%. One patient with fistulas was later diagnosed as having Crohn's disease. These authors concluded that early and late morbidity after colectomy is common in children with ulcerative colitis and that preoperative medications did not predict any particular postoperative complication. The fourth GI original article is entitled Familial Resemblance of Bone Mineral Density in Children with Inflammatory Bowel Disease by Schmidt and colleagues. This article is accompanied by an editorial by Linda Polgreen from the University of Minnesota. The study asked whether parental bone mineral density might be a factor contributing to the risk of low bone mineral density in children with inflammatory bowel disease. 
This population-based study from Western Sweden included 144 children with inflammatory bowel disease, 136 of their mothers, and 130 of their fathers. Of the children with IBD, 83 had ulcerative colitis, 45 had Crohn's disease, and 16 had indeterminate colitis. The authors measured bone density in patients and parents using dual energy X-ray absorptiometry or DEXA scanning. After adjustment for age, sex, weight, height, and parental inflammatory bowel disease, the authors correlated patient bone mineral densities at various sites with the bone mineral densities of each parent and, where possible, with a mid-parent bone mineral density value calculated as one-half of the maternal plus paternal bone mineral density. The Pearson correlation coefficient R was used to evaluate the extent of familial resemblance. The authors found that bone mineral density of the children with IBD was clearly related to the bone mineral density of their parents. The strongest correlation was found in the femoral neck, where there was an R value of 0.55 between the bone mineral density of the child and the mid-parent value. The odds ratio for finding decreased bone mineral density in the lumbar spine of a child with IBD was 5.96 if decreased bone mineral density was present in both parents. The authors concluded that bone mineral density in children with inflammatory bowel disease was significantly related to that of their parents and suggested that it might be helpful to assess the bone mineral densities of parents as an aid to interpreting these measurements in pediatric IBD patients. Several of the hepatology articles in this issue deal with chronic hepatitis C infection in children. The first article is entitled Ophthalmologic Complications in Children with Chronic Hepatitis C Treated with Pegylated Interferon by Narkowitz and colleagues from the PEDS-C study group. New onset retinopathy occurs in 19 to 29% of adult patients with chronic hepatitis C taking interferon therapy. In this paper, the authors evaluated the ophthalmologic complications of 114 children with chronic hepatitis C treated in a multicenter randomized clinical trial of pegylated interferon alpha-2A with either added placebo or ribavirin. The children had ophthalmologic examinations, including slit lamp, at 0, 24, and 48 weeks of treatment. At entry, none of the 114 eligible children had any retinal disease. 110 children had an eye examination at 24 weeks and 103 children at 48 weeks. Three subjects, or 2.6 of the total patients, developed documented or possible serious eye complications. One patient developed cotton wool spots at week 24, which indicated ischemic retinopathy. One developed uveitis by week 48, and one at week 36 reported a transient episode of blindness in one eye, lasting less than four hours. This patient's eye examination at week 48 was normal. The authors concluded that ophthalmologic complications in children with chronic hepatitis C treated with pegylated interferon alpha-2A are infrequent, but because of the potential severity of ischemic retinopathy and uveitis, regular eye examination should remain part of the monitoring strategy for these children. 
The next hepatology article is entitled Retreatment of Children with Chronic Hepatitis C Who Did Not Respond to Interferon A Treatment by Gurner and colleagues. Many patients with chronic hepatitis C do not respond to initial antiviral treatment and are retreated. Because the response to retreatment in children is not well defined, the authors evaluated the efficacy and safety of interferon alpha plus ribavirin in 18 patients who failed to respond to previous treatment. This was an open-labeled, uncontrolled study involving patients with both vertical and parenterally acquired hepatitis C of varying severity with an age range from 4 to 17 years. None had HIV. One had concomitant hepatitis B. 15 of the 18 had been treated with interferon alpha plus ribavirin, and three had received interferon alpha alone. 14 patients were non-responders through previous treatment, and the other four had a viral breakthrough during treatment and or a relapse after treatment. 16 patients had hepatitis C genotype 1, and two were genotype 4. All patients received subcutaneous interferon alpha three times per week for 24 or 48 weeks, depending on genotype, plus ribavirin for the full 48 weeks. Results. Four patients showed early viral response to therapy and became hepatitis C RNA negative after 12 weeks. Sustained viral negativity for six months after therapy occurred in two of these four. These two patients belonged to the group of four children who had relapsed or experienced a viral breakthrough during previous treatment. None of the 14 patients with prior non-responsiveness had sustained viral response to additional therapy. The authors concluded that, as in adults, retreatment with interferon alpha plus ribavirin may be useful in children who relapse during antiviral treatment but not in children who have failed to respond to initial therapy. The last hepatology article is entitled Influence of Body Mass Index on Outcome of Pediatric Chronic Hepatitis C Virus Infection by Delgado Borrego and colleagues. Progression of chronic hepatitis C infection and poor response to interferon therapy is thought to relate in part to obesity in adults. However, studies on this association have been confounded in adults by multiple comorbidities and by the use of treatment dosages not individualized to the patient's weight. In this paper, the authors looked retrospectively at the relationship between body mass index, or BMI, and the progression and response to therapy of chronic hepatitis C virus infection in 123 children treated at the Children's Hospital in Boston from 1998 to 2007. Patient weight and height at the time of liver biopsy or before and after anti-hepatitis C treatment were obtained and the BMI was calculated. As expected, the authors found that the mean BMI percentile of patients with hepatic steatosis was statistically higher than the mean BMI percentile of patients without hepatic steatosis, 72nd percentile versus 58th percentile, respectively. Patients who did not respond to antiviral therapy had a statistically higher mean BMI percentile than responders, 70th percentile versus 50th percentile, respectively, 
by both univariate and multivariate analysis. Using a multivariate model, it was calculated that one standard deviation, or one z-score unit, increase in baseline BMI was associated with a 12% decrease in the probability of sustained virologic response to therapy. The authors concluded that even in the absence of significant comorbidities, overweight adversely affected the progression of chronic hepatitis C virus liver disease and was associated with diminished response to antiviral therapy. Finally, there was a short communication in this issue entitled Development and Assessment of a Modified Pediatric Crohn's Disease Activity Index by Leach and colleagues. The Pediatric Crohn's Disease Activity Index is a validated global measure of disease activity in children with Crohn's disease. However, its use as a tool for measuring rapid changes in the inflammatory state in a research setting may be limited because of the ambiguities introduced by the subjective and anthropometric components of the index. The authors, therefore, developed and evaluated a modified PCDAI that includes the three objective laboratory measures of the index, sedimentation rate, serum albumin, and hematocrit, but added a further objective measurement of serum C-reactive protein. They evaluated this modified index in a cohort of 100 Crohn disease patients. They felt that the modified index provided a better indication of disease activity because they found it correlated with the Pediatric Crohn Disease Activity Index, the Physician's Global Assessment, and Fecal Calprotectin. They suggested that the modified index might be a suitable alternative to the Pediatric Crohn's Disease Activity Index when required, especially in drug therapy trials. An editorial by James Perrin from the Massachusetts General Hospital accompanies this communication in which he reviews the development of the Crohn Disease Activity Index and discusses the pros and cons of weighting this index with more objective criteria. This concludes the JPGN podcast for August 2010. There is much more in this issue, including papers on the utility of abdominal plane films in chronic constipation, the quality of life of adults with Hirschsprung disease, comparison of pancreatitis as it presents in infants and in older children, the use of a cow milk-free diet in chronic constipation, the outcome of idiopathic superior mesenteric artery syndrome, the AST to platelet ratio in the assessment of hepatic fibrosis, a review of probiotic bacteria use in preterm infants, a study of matrix metalloproteinases and their inhibitors in preterm human milk, a review of blood urea nitrogen values in preterm infants on parenteral and enteral nutrition, and a study of BMI, cardiovascular risk factors, and carotid intima to media thickness in children in southern Italy. For more information about this issue or to access the complete articles, visit the JPGN website at jpgn.org or the NASPGAN website at naspghan.org. JPGN is the official journal of ESPGAN and NASPGAN. The co-editors are Eric Sibley and David Bransky. I'm Judy Sondheimer. See you next month.